0: Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have a familiar voice if you've been listening to the podcast even in the past month or so. We have Jason Scheftel on to talk more about China and more specifically about Christianity in China. Jason is an author and podcaster with a background in international development, law, and economics. He spent considerable time in China and was recently on to talk about its influence in the world. And he's back on to talk about Christianity. Jason, thanks for returning.
1: Yeah, glad to be here, Doug.
0: So there's a lot to talk about when it comes to Christianity in China. And there's history to talk about. There's the future. There's the present. That's my boring way to say there's a lot to talk about. So I'll just let you sort of get started and Decide where you want to begin for our listeners, because there's just so much, so much to
1: hear. Sure, yeah, Christianity in China right now is a really big story that doesn't doesn't get talked about enough. And one of the problems with it is getting the full sweep of how it got to where it is today can take a little bit of effort. So, you know, I think we can just start really right at the beginning. So, as people know, Christianity is about two thousand years old, and it takes a while to get to East Asia. So, there's a historical story about the Apostle Thomas. And he actually followed certain trade routes and made it to southwestern India. So you can go, there's a lot of really old churches there. And there's some speculation, that's probably mostly speculation, that St. Thomas also made it all the way to China. That's probably unlikely. And China was pretty violent and chaotic for the couple hundred years around then. But the first story we really know of Christianity making it to China involved sort of Justinian I, an old Byzantine emperor who wanted to figure out how to make silk. So the Silk Road and the great trade between Rome and, and China, all this was about silk. And it was actually a state secret in China, punishable by death to tell anyone how silk was made. So they sent uh, some Christian missionaries to China to learn the secret in about the mid-6th century. And that's one of the early stories of how Christianity first arrived in China. And... Hmm. Yeah, it's a funny one. It's the old Nestorian Church was the one that played the largest role probably until the 1200s in China. This was an old Church of the East, similar to Eastern Orthodox, vague an old antecedent kind of family resemblance to Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And this happened during an early sort of China's second state imperial formation during the Tang Dynasty, which was really open dynasty that led in Buddhism, that led in Christianity that opened all the ports, that opened the country to all these foreign influences. But what happened, and which is a really common pattern for China, is this really open phase forced the, the empire to eventually close back down. So it clamped down, it kicked out Christians, it kicked out Buddhists, it kicked out everything. And then the state actually like collapsed in a pretty brutal fashion.
0: So in the 6th century, is where we're talking about, right? At the moment, what was the, you know, in our minds, we have this sort of if you know your geography, you have this mental picture of the boundaries of China. How different was it back then? And you can correct me if I misplace what era you were talking about.
1: No, so it's the it's the sixth to maybe the the eighth century is is sort of the period when it was Christianity was first really moving in. And during that time, it's a great question: the western parts of China that you see, where Tibet is, where Xinjiang is, sort of the western desert regions. Those were very tenuously connected or controlled by China. The Tang Dynasty that I mentioned at its very height, its maximum, most ascendant phase, it sort of controlled that area of Xinjiang above Tibet, sort of Central Asia, where the steppe is, where it kind of moves into where the old Turkic and Persian empires were. That region was a military protectorate, but it only lasted for a couple decades, and it quickly turned Mm -hmm. back into a chaotic difficult place to navigate. And that's one of the reasons Christianity had a, a rough time getting into China. The, the Silk Road sort of goes through that region. And if it gets, if it, no one controls it on the Chinese side or on the, the more Central Asian side, it can be extremely dangerous to mm-hmm. try and traverse it, yeah. So and it was actually only until the Mongol conquest in the 1200s where this is actually when Christianity was basically gone until then. And the Mongols, because they actually conquered that entire region, it was the first time that it really opened it all up under one rule. So that's when the Silk Road arrived. That's when it really came into, into force. And that's when you get Marco Polo. That's when you get a lot of the, the next phase of, of Christianity in China. After it had been kind of tamped down from like the eighth to the twelfth yeah. century, sort of as China had reconsolidated and moved to the south and that those regions all started to, to war against each other. It wasn't until the Mongols came and in a brutal, brutal unification, sort of flattened everything, and let people travel back, back through. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that sounds like it's more where we're like, if you're thinking more about Western
1: civilization and Western civilization history, that we recognize those names at that point in time. Yeah. And that's really when the imagination, the Western imagination of China started to come into force. So Marco Polo and a, and a number of other travelers were were huge in promoting a certain idea of, of China. And there's also these very interesting medieval stories about a, a great Catholic or Christian nation, or before the Catholic Christian nation that was living sort of above that lived above China. People and all these missionaries I think it was the there's a land run by John the Baptist. It was it was supposed to be a mythical Christian nation. A number of people tried to go mm-hmm. find. It's kind of an odd historical note, but it's like a fountain of youth kind of endeavor. E, yeah, you know, the the this is a period where the maps of the world were very Rough to say the least. So they didn't know, and even China had no idea what was really above the Gobi Desert and these other places. It was for a long time they just called it Tartary, which was after the Mongol conquests, they, they were called the Tartars. It's sort of a relationship to the Greek notion of hell and, and the sort of the conflicts that and crises that the Mongols created in Western Europe and Western Eastern Europe, that the whole region, all of Asia above China and parts of China were just called Tartary. And they had no idea what was going on there. And they did think yeah. that. Yeah, there was, it's almost like on the old maps you used to see where there are mythical creatures on the edges, like there'll be oh, dragons yeah. and stuff. It was <laughs> almost like a, 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 a human civilization version of that. Okay. Along with that, the great sort of movement of, of Catholicism and later the Jesuits sort of happened after the Mongols, once the, the roads were opened up. And then once the, the Ming dynasty came in again, which was a, finally like a Chinese dynasty again, mm. that's like the 1300s. Okay. Under them, you got the real spread of Catholicism. You got the Jesuits who arrived and you started to see a very learned group of Christians, almost that the Nestorians, those old Greek sort of Orthodox, they they fell away and Catholics arrived and they actually moved directly into Beijing. They They had immense mathematical knowledge. They had immense astronomical and astrological, I guess they cared about that as well. Knowledge that was incredibly interesting and relevant to the the Beijing court. So they actually really ingratiated themselves right into the core of the Chinese state, which is very remarkable. And so there were, there's a, a number of famous Catholics and and priests who translated certain works, who learned the language, who started to move the Bible and other things into the Chinese language. And that is where things also started to get very dicey because this was when the European empires were appearing in China the Portuguese appeared in the South and Southern coast, the Dutch appeared and Christianity became really associated with groups of powerful nations on the other side of the world. Because before no one knew what Marco Polo was up to. No one knew what these early, they didn't know where they were from. If anything came from the Pope, no one knew who or what the Pope was. Like none of it really mattered. Once you had powerful States that were sort of challenging authority and political authority, there was a much more, Dangerous element to the religion. So mm-hmm. one of the reasons Buddhism is is still to this day more accepted by the by Chinese states is because it's less of a politically active or socially active sort of religion, which mm-hmm. uh, Christianity in many of, its, many of its forms is very different. And from here, there was a lot of crises that happened as this happened. The a new dynasty came in, and you got all these conflicts over. In particular, there's this one conflict over whether the Chinese ancestor worship, which was Chinese ancestor worship has been going on for thousands of years. And it was, became a big point of contention whether that went against Catholic doctrine. And there was a big, mm. the Pope said, you know, you can't do this. It doesn't, doesn't fit. And there's a whole conflict between the Christians in China, the Catholics in China, who were saying, no, this is a separate practice. These ancestor rights, they're, they can, they're totally... They're fine, they're compatible with Christianity versus other groups that didn't. And this whole conflict actually caused Christianity to be completely banned in China. And this is the 1700s. And that, that was sort of the legacy that happened. That was the, the, sort of the final legacy of Christianity before we move into the really the modern era in the 19th century, where you get the first Protestant activists, the first Protestant missionaries, you start getting a lot of really, really powerful movements, Christian movements that affect China still to this day.
0: It sounds like, we're, you know, prior to the 17th century, there's a lot of, like, Christianity is sort of, like, trying to push its way in, and it seems like, from what you were saying, that it's mostly Catholic. Is that, am I hearing that right?
1: Yeah, so, before the, the 19th century, the Nestorians got kicked out, the Catholics came in, and it was predominantly Catholic. And China was predominantly Catholic, at least until 1949. So, maybe around Mao's death, did it was only around Mao's death that okay. Protestantism really started moving, which is... As we'll see, it's a complete shift from what Christianity looks like in China today.
0: And the influence in the past there, so the 17th century and before, was the Christian message, the bringing of the good news of Jesus Christ, was that tied into seizing political power or seeking to influence it more so than, like you mentioned the, you know, Buddhism isn't quite like that, but was, did it pose a threat to the Chinese dynasties? Or were they more so like embraced because, oh, well, we can use this? Or do you know?
1: Yeah. So what tends to happen is that during sort of the ascendant phases of a Chinese state, mm-hmm. a lot of foreign influences will be allowed in to see how they can benefit the state as it reconsolidates. So you actually see even the in the Tang Dynasty, Buddhism was allowed in and it was actually became a political force, which is unusual. But that tends to fade away. And then a lot of religions or possibly aspects of anything foreign that can destabilize a Chinese state towards the end of regimes or when the world is seen more in terms of threat rather than opportunity. Christianity Mm -hmm. is one of the many things that does get looked at with a very skeptical eye. Not, I wouldn't say before then that it was uniquely or particularly a threat. I wouldn't say that. So for the the Ming dynasty and stuff like that, it it was not a, it was, it was just sort of one of the many, one of the many problems that hit it at the end. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it it sounds like there's a lot of like, when Christianity is tied to colonization and dominance of states, that it becomes a particular threat. And of course it also becomes, you know, I can imagine, I mean, again, I'm picturing as you're talking here, you know, these, you know, you have, you said you had the Portuguese coming into the South and like, if they're bringing Christianity along with their statism, I could see that as, you know, really a threat to the efforts of any particular empire or dynasty.
1: Yeah. You know, and the, the early Portuguese and Spanish colonists around the world, they were, they were sort of the generation of, and the generation soon after the Reconquista in the Iberian Peninsula. So in Spain, it was partially Arab for a, a good amount of time. And then it was reconquered soon before the Age of Discovery sort of opened up and these same people went and, well, Vasco da Gama went around Africa and they went to South America as well. And then those, those conquests were a, a lot of a combination of the book and the sword, I guess you could say. So it was mm-hmm. the good word and the, the sharp steel. Mm. And some of those early influences did take part in Southern China as well. The early Portuguese were not well-received in Southern China, but they were also pretty distant from the core of the country in in the north so it was okay. there was a far it was, it's not like they arrived at the capital doorstep they arrived in the south which was a slightly different region but yeah. they were still immensely disliked from the beginning and the okay. dutch were dutch were called the red-haired barbarians that was their original <laughs> that was their <laughs> original name yeah
0: <laughs> so that brings us then to the 19th century Yeah. and then you and you also mentioned like we've kind of gone into like you said like 1949 or something so let's talk a little bit more about the more recent, I
1: mean, not in my history, but more recent history. Sure. The 19th century was in a completely transformative time for, for China and also for Christianity in China. So this was when Protestantism arrived and it was very unsuccessful in the beginning. So the first Protestant missionary was actually a guy named Robert Morrison. And he did a lot of stuff. He did a lot of research, like a lot of scholarly work outside of his missionary work. So he did research translation. He did linguistics and cultural work relating to China and Chinese language and Chinese culture. But by his death, he baptized a handful of people. So after decades, after a few decades of time spent in China, he was a very small number that he was ever able to convert. And by the first opium war in in 1839, there were still probably only a hundred or so Protestant converts in China. But then things get really unusual. So in 1850, the emperor in Beijing, the Qing emperor, he dies, and there's a another one is put on the throne. But at the same time, in southern China, a civil war has begun and broken out, and a guy has also proclaimed himself to be the emperor of China. But this is a very this is a very unusual story, and it's forgotten, but sort of but very true. And he didn't just declare himself emperor of China; he declared himself the younger brother of Jesus Christ, and his new empire was going to be called the Taiping kingdom of heavenly peace. And oh, wow. this was a, yeah. So, and this guy went on, his name was Hongshou Chen. He went on to create it and basically to conquer all of Southern China. He established himself in, in Nanjing uh, in sort of the Yangtze Delta. And he almost won control of China. And this was a basically a holy war between a Christian sect, a, I should clarify that. So this is the Taipings, this Hongshou Chen was, a student of Robert Morrison and the other missionaries, and he was educated in Southern China, near Hong Kong, and he failed his imperial am- examination, I think three times, had visions, and thought it was his duty to rid China of demons, of Confucianism, of all these aberrant old practices and to bring Christianity to China. Hmm. And this, and I'll tell you that if you go to the, the Nanjing, the memorial about the Taiping, it's called the Taiping Rebellion, but it's really a civil war. If you go see the museum there, there's barely any mention that this was a Christian movement. Hmm. It was basically been redwashed into a proto-communist attack against feudalism, and the fact that it was remarkably uh, influenced by Christianity is barely mentioned. You think they would want to
0: use the mention of Christianity to show how violent Christianity is, or how people shouldn't want? Like, you think that would be used as propaganda by saying that it was?
1: Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very interesting. There's a a good push that could move it in that direction. But there are also elements of this Taiping state. It was probably the earliest modern state in China. So the guy, Hong Xiu Chen, who became the heavenly king, his cousin was educated in the West, and he ended up becoming sort of the prime minister of this government. And he created a document, basically about what the work of government should be, that is the earliest modern treatise about what government should look like in China. So he said, you should have newspapers, you should have free press, free speech, you should have industry railroads, all this stuff that the communist government has also looked towards that as sort of a modernizing influence. So they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, basically. (laughs) They want the modernizing, sort of, this was a proto-communist attack against feudalism, but they don't want to bring in this Christianity stuff, but they can't attack it at the same time. Mm -hmm, So they sort mm -hmm. of, they kind of went to the side of saying, okay, it's a, will take the modernizing proto-communist revolution side of it and just okay. completely expunge the other half. And also say the 19th century, Christianity and the, the missionaries there, especially towards the end of the century, did in very, very invaluable work in getting rid of foot binding, advancing the education of women, creating the first hospitals in China, creating the first universities in China. There's a, a number of things that the missionaries in China did in that time that they are not given credit for, there's a major oversight or a purposeful one that people don't want to acknowledge. Mm. It's really irrefutable how how crucial they were as catalysts yeah. in, in along a number of these areas. Yeah. Mm. And just to to give another thing about that civil war. So the, the Taiping Civil War happened about the same time as the US Civil War. It was a lot longer, it went on for 15 years. But it, it was the deadliest conflict in world history, I think up until World War Two. So it, it killed, you know, twenty twenty million or more people. That would have been like two thirds of the U.S. entire U.S. population at the time. Mm, oh, wow. It was a, it was an insanely devastating war. It was it was yeah, like I said, sort of the worst one in history up until that time. But it was a huge, like you mentioned, this negative influence of Christianity, and that its ability to create basically a holy war in China as a, with the figure with a powerful figure of a redeemer that does not have a, a really a parallel in Chinese history or iconography or religion, that has returned in certain ways in the communist and post-reform communist challenge with Christianity. There is strong echoes of the dangers of Christianity when they look back and they see, and whether the Chinese people can see it easily or not, the veritable Christian nature of this, this civil war. Yeah, that I didn't know. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. It, it also sounds yeah. it sounds like I'm making it up, right? But it's maybe one of the three most important events in China in that century. So a very important one that the government is now, if it didn't remember back in the you know the 40s, it's definitely thinking about more now.
0: What do you know about how the Chinese government actually handles its own history, like? At this point, the people who are in the Chinese government, I mean, just think of the oldest people, right? Or even like the last government, like, do they not know? Is it a like down the memory hole kind of thing? And only in Western civilization, do we have some of these records? Or do these people actually know the truth?
1: And they're just like, well, this is part of our propaganda, we're not going to share it. History is very thoroughly controlled and directed and shaped by whatever government is in power. And so it's not even this government, but Every prior Chinese major Chinese state has strongly recrafted or influenced or rewritten the history books of the prior state. It goes back forever. It's almost a par for the course. But your question is really important. And when you see, oh, the amazing advances that China's had and all the technology and all this, but what is the sense of their history that is learned in China? It is not on the mark just because a lot of the like you said the oldest person in, in sort of the government now they've had a very very tough relationship to history ideology there's been the cultural revolution there's been all these attempts at national self transformation that haven't worked there's been many campaigns to denounce the history and then embrace the history to destroy confucius and then embrace him there's a lot of back and forth that makes it very difficult for for many chinese people to get a strong sense of what what should be known and there's also increasing controls on university professors and the academics and intellectuals who would typically harbor mm. a lot of this knowledge. And many of them were actually wiped out during the Cultural Revolution. So okay. there's generational challenges as well as like a typical political attack against the prior regime and its, uh, its affairs.
0: So we're getting closer to the present. Are we ready to talk about Maoist China at this point?
1: Yeah, we, I, think we, I think we are. That, that was really, there's a Christian influence in Chinese modernization. That leads in a way, sort of right to the the communist revolution. Not to say that communism is related to it, but Got it. Yep. Sun Yat-sen was actually he's acknowledged by the communist government as well as the nationalist government in, in Taiwan to be the founder of modern China. And he was a baptized preacher from Hong Kong who went to the same school as Obama in you know in Hawaii. And that train moves up until the the communist revolution when things shift, and you probably have around four million. Christians, four or five million Christians in the country around 1949. So that's maybe a million Protestants at this point and still a majority Catholics, three, four million. And then from that moment, you get a ban on religion. You get persecution, you get oppression, pretty much what you expect until Mao's death in in 1967. Uh, Sorry, 76.
0: Yeah. So what kind of persecution and oppression are we talking about here? I mean, Americans, and I bring that up because right now, American Christians Like we know that in other countries there's been oppression and persecution, and yet still somehow we think that certain things happening in our own country is also persecution. And it's you know, it's admittedly a much lighter form. But you know, if there's that many Christians, and again, that's probably a small percentage of the population. What does that look like for them in in the sixties, seventies?
1: Oh, I mean, the that period was it was a really chaotic time as a baseline. So to add okay. that, that you yeah to add that you were also member believed in a foreign religion or part of foreign associated churches this was all extremely dangerous it was okay so you, this
0: wasn't like a, a
1: free speech violation kind of thing no 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 and so during certain times you could have masses of students with red armbands that were willing to do terrible things to people who were accused of foreign influence foreign subversion all, all that sort of stuff there was a lot of Sparks uh, little outbursts of paranoia, and it was it was really it was really bad. It, things went very far underground during this time, to the extent that people even acknowledged it. Mm. Yeah, this was also this was a period of collectivization. This was a period of many things that would make it very difficult to practice sort of your individual religion in a free associate. All these sorts of things were very difficult. Not to mention that for the Catholics, you're not allowed the connection to papal organizations to, to to the Vatican and all that. That was all gone. But still, you know, by by Mao's death, there was about, actually there was no growth in the Catholic population, but you probably had a, at that time the first equivalents in Prode- Protestant groups and Catholic groups. And then with the opening of China, beginning of the opening in China, the late 70s, that's when religion was sort of allowed in again. And from then on, you saw an explosive growth in in Christianity, and almost entirely in, not entirely, but vast majority of it is in Protestant groups. So you had 6 to 7% growth a year in religious belief, in Protestant religious belief, all the way back to 1979. So that's almost, that's 40 years now of insane growth. Okay. Yeah. But it didn't come in a easy or it wasn't suddenly like, oh, we'll allow in everything. Everything is okay. All foreign religions are okay. This was a massive Maoist state operation that was basically dealing with so many problems at once with such a limited capacity that the growth of Christianity was not really, it was almost like it couldn't really be fought in a way to the extent they would have wanted to. But yeah, that's, that kind of brings us to where we are. The, you know, since the last 40 years of, of Chinese growth, along with that, you had the growth of the. Christian population, but a really important thing to note is that at this time, it was no longer outsiders trying to to convert Chinese people. This wasn't Robert Morrison trying to do it in the early 1800s and really failing. This was really from within China. This was almost entirely like a homegrown, homespun Christianity. And there were multiple groups that sort of Chinese Christian groups that emerged as well. But in general, it has been this internal process in China now Mm -hmm. that is really autonomous, that's one of the more unique factors that people should consider when they're thinking about what it looks like now. It is, it is yes, a foreign religion, but it is enormous. Yeah, Today, so 2020, there's probably around 90 to 100 million Christians in China. And thing, this is where things get dicey because the true number of Christians is a state secret. So we're at the point, again, where the truth of what's going on about Christians and religion, it's returned to that phase of, the Chinese state is tightening itself. The foreign influences are not as, it's not, oh, let's open the ports, let in foreign capital. And, you know, if foreign religions come in too. That's par for the course. That's, we just have to accept it. It's like, no, growth is slowing. We have problem areas all around our borders. We have conflicts with around the world. We can't, you know, these foreign, harder to control movements are, are seen as dangerous to the political establishment. And they're so dangerous that the government says that it has maybe 30 million Christians which is laughable. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. What we're seeing more of is it's a world of state approved faith and worship. And this goes from the Bibles that are allowed in to the organ. Every, every church has to be a member of a set of you know, approved state churches, basically. This has been the problem. There's always, you'll always see in the news occasionally a recurring controversy between the Vatican and, and China just about the fact that basically, You can be a Catholic church if you have no connection to the the Catholic church. And it's a similar thing for Protestant groups. You have to be approved. That means you have to have approved topics, approved materials, approved lectures, approved groups. Everything is regulated. So what's happened is that you actually have a number of underground churches that have really spawned. And that has increased the level of paranoia and fear and repression that's coming from the the state. Mm-hmm. This, this idea of secret societies of religious groups is maybe the most common theme in the downfall of Chinese states. Not to say that has anything to do with Christianity or anything today, but it is a common theme throughout. And that's actually those groups, early Christian groups were really instrumental, like I said, and Sun Yat-sen and the Southern Chinese groups that he was a part of that helped bring down the Qing dynasty. So yeah. So this
0: underground situation, I mean, I understand the metaphor, but does it look like, you know, people meeting privately under the auspices of something else, or are they sort of pretending they're a state approved church, but
1: then, you know, they just don't really abide by it once they have services? No, it's it's sort of like you you meet in people's homes, you meet in I guess it's better to say highly informal rather than uh, underground. Okay. Underground, yeah. the reason that's used is just due to the reporting requirements and demands sure, yeah. for the books, the lectures, the sermons to all be regulated, which is also something that doesn't fit a lot of the high growth Protestant sects, basically in the world, the, the evangelical mm-hmm. or sects. They, they, they don't have that. They're more individualistic. They're, they're more freeform. So they don't even fit the model of religious governance that the party yeah, wants. Right. So it's already at loggerheads on that point.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, I didn't think about it that way like being more hierarchical and formal and, you know, that does not suit most evangelical Protestants very very well. You know, it depends on the denomination, but I I can see what you mean there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's also something where even the Chinese the party and the the, the state apparatus has acknowledged that the materialist the growth of pure materialism with no spiritual or other moral component to it has been a very negative for China, and there's yeah. a big hole in sort of people's spiritual or, or moral life that that is being filled by Christianity, and it's it's so hard for an avowedly atheist state to deal with. So in its constitution, it has that oh this and that religion are approved. There are quote official religions and such, but it's really not like that. There's not this history of the division of church and state where there are two separate poles of authority like we have in the West in China. Right it was a unification of state and spiritual authority in the figure of the emperor. And that was part of the core of, of what happened. Um, and you see look, Confucianism and these other, what's often talked about as Chinese folk religion, they they don't have the same sort of any sort of hierarchical structure. Like you mentioned that you see, in, in for example, the Catholic church, mm-hmm. it's very, it's very different. And it's also one of the things that causes these challenges for the Chinese government, which is, said it's atheist. So it's gotten rid of its own spiritual authority, if that makes sense. You know, it used to be that, you know, you're both at once and now you're not that, but you're not really allowing anything else to be it at the same time. And that's sort of creating a vacuum that, I mean, this is part of of why we see such growth in in Christianity in China. And it's also why it's hard to see anything but continued growth Mm. of Christianity Mm -hmm. in China. Because it's, and it's also one of those things where the more illicit and underground is forced, the more it has that, the allure, you know, it's like you tell a kid not to do something. And the first thing he thinks about is like, well, how do I do this when he's not looking?
0: Uh, uh-huh.
1: and, and there's there's that element too. So I think a lot of Christians have probably heard how China is likely to be the largest Christian nation, maybe around 2030. And it's, again, it's hard to know because the numbers are now state secrets, but something in, in that time frame isn't unreasonable. Yeah. And it's a big change and it's it's going to be, a very difficult thing for China to deal with. And I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians, a lot of religious people see what's happening with the Muslims in China right now. And there's reason to worry about what might happen to Christians in China when you have a history like the, the Taiping Civil War, when you have a history of Christianity being instrumental in the being part of the downfall of the, of the Qing dynasty. You, you see these sorts of things and it can become a very ominous sort of scenario. Hmm. And it's again, China prefers more docile sorts of, of faiths, and especially the the loud in your face, individualistic forms of Christianity. It's, it's gonna be very challenging for the government. I probably said that a couple times now. But you yeah. see these churches are being destroyed. There's a lot more 20 since 2012. There's been a big crackdown on Christians in China, the last eight years now. That's probably very underreported in the West. But I had a friend whose father goes to China very often for work, and he was a member of, a, of an underground church that was, that was destroyed. So it's, it's, a, it's a real phenomenon.
0: So you mentioned that the individualism sort of rubs, rubs the, uh, the dynasty the wrong way, rubs the government the wrong way. That's, that's probably understating it. But <laughs> I had never thought of individualism being that way. But I suppose if your heritage and your ancestry and respect for the state as a collective, that individualism would be a threat. Like usually, it, in my opinion, or in my observation, I should say, Christianity is a threat to empire because it sort of dismantles its power. And maybe individualism is one of those ways of doing it. I hadn't thought about that. But it's just interesting that you mentioned that individualism is the threat or yeah. part of the threat.
1: Yeah, it's, there's a certain connection between that individualism and, and the particularly Protestant faith. So this is a very interesting... Point. But in China, they talk about emperors were the sons of heaven. That was the phrase, right? So there's this idea of heaven. But the idea of heaven in China is not like heaven or God in the West. This is something that's probably important for people to understand. And it's also part of the reason if you look at the Taipings and what they were talking about, it's a very syncretic faith that doesn't Mm -hmm. look like most of us would understand it. But God and heaven, the way that it was conceptualized in China, was more of the repository of of our great ancestors and their heroic behavior to build a, a world out of, out of nature, something, something like that. That was closer mm-hmm. to what it was. So the son of heaven was the, the next example in that great lineage of, of, of sort of the collective spiritual essence of formerly of the dead. Basically it was very connected to actually to ancestor worship and, and the worship of, of dead ancestors. But in, in the West, we have a very different idea God became more over the course of the development of, of Christianity. It became more; the more traditional definition is sort of the source of being outside of time and space, like sort of is a much more abstracted and conceptualized framework in general. And then when you add that on to the Protestant faith, where you have sort of a religious belief by faith alone, so sola fides, after the Protestant Reformation, you're looking at a at a very individualized conception of spiritual identity. Authority, responsiveness to, to sort of religious uh, events, all these sorts of things are very different from a China, the traditional Chinese experience. So, when you're saying that, yeah, it's very weird to see this connection between threat and individualism, it's real. It's real and it is very different from, from our experience, sort of just the collective heritage we have. Yeah.
0: So, for Christians today, Thinking about the future of Christianity in China and the potential coming persecution or just challenges that Christians will have in China, either to influence their own culture or to even, you know, maybe even they won't be allowed to leave. I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a whole number of factors there. I mean, what what can we think about and how can we process what we're about to witness in the next decade or so? Because it doesn't seem to be capturing the attention of most of us. And I have a hunch that if something serious happens, all of a sudden it'll be like, oh my goodness, this is happening in China and we better pay attention. Yet you would probably come on at that time. Let's just imagine we're six years in the future from today. You'll come on and say, Oh yeah, we've been watching this, you know, people who have paid attention have been seeing this grow and grow and grow for the last six years. And so what are those things that could be potentially, you know, newsworthy eventually, but we might want to be paying attention earlier?
1: Yeah, I think I think the some newsworthy events are just there, there hasn't yet been any high-profile crackdown on, uh, on Christians. And there's uh, one of the things that makes it more challenging, or I guess less challenging for the Chinese state, is that Christians aren't specifically located in a region of China that is a historical threat. So they're not like the Muslims in Xinjiang that are seeing extreme persecution in the same way. But there are other Muslims in China that aren't seeing that level of persecution. There's a the, sort of the geographical distribution of Christians is is not at the at the moment a major concern, but assuming certain processes in China continue, the definition of what is restive and what is consequential geographically could could very well change. Mm-hmm. So I think the overall stability of the Chinese state is actually a good indicator of the threat to Christians. One of the really terrible paradoxes and ironies of, of China is that as terrible as the Chinese state is, most times in history and including now, what happens in that land, if there is no strong authority, can often be much worse. So that's what we actually saw against Christians in the the 50s and 60s, where there was state authority, but there was also these periods of state breakdown. So when Mao basically had all of the country war against itself to maintain his sort of behind-the-scenes authority, when you see those sorts of conflicts spew out from mm-hmm. from the the more local regional level that's when things become very hard to predict and very hard to to deal with but mm-hmm. one of the things Christians will have to in the West will have to come to grips with in a certain sense is that these are really Chinese Christians where the growth of Christianity in China was kind of sustained from within so what Christians in the West can do actively or physically or just morally to sort of relate to them is, is a major difference from how Christians might relate to the persecution of Christians in Syria, for example, of a small minority in a different place that just doesn't seem to have its own grasp in the region in the same way. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a big shift. And I, I wish there were certain things I could point to, to tell people how to think about it, how to watch for what to happen. But even when things start to happen, the ability of the West in general, to do anything could be very limited. It's kind of like what we see with Hong Kong, where Hong Kong is this terrible, It's a, there's a crackdown going on in Hong Kong to limit its historical role and to transform into a more Chinese place. But the US can't do many things to help Hong Kong that wouldn't also hurt Hong Kong, basically. Mm-hmm. Those sorts of catch-22s, I think, are going to be very a very sad and prominent part of the way things may go, which is unfortunate. But the, the growth in Christianity timed with the sort of struggles of, a, of the coming years for the Chinese state are a, definitely a combustible mix. Yeah.
0: Well, Jason, I, man, there's just like so much there. I'm going to probably have to listen to this episode again just to like <laughs> take in everything and all the details that you've, that you've shared with us. Is there anything else that you'd want to share with our listeners about what we talked about or anything,
1: last things that we didn't get to talk about? No I think I think we gave, I think we gave everybody a good amount to to chew on. Uh, I think right now, China is the only countries that have more Christians than China right now I think are the u s Brazil, Mexico, Russia, the Philippines, and maybe Nigeria. Hmm. So it's already really you know that might give people a framework it's It's really high up there, and like I said, the growth rate's high, and yeah we'll see we'll see what thing, where things happen. but I think your listeners have more of a sense of where christianity was in china how it's evolved how it's moved and yeah. a sense for how it relates to the changing profile of the chinese state which is going to be really important to, to see how things go
0: all right well thanks for joining us to share with us your uh, your expertise and your what you've learned so yeah I, I really appreciate it
1: it was great Doug. glad to be on
0: Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calledtofreedombook.com.